We left off in Joel chapter 2, verse 11, but I do want to do just a little review, and um, the judgment that comes in chapter 1 is a judgment of of locusts. These are literal locusts, and what they do is completely devastate the southern kingdom. So we're talking Judah here. And I think I made mention that um, I tied in verse six of of, um, chapter one where it describes uh, a nation coming up against the land strong without number. His teeth are like the teeth of lion. Uh, The nation in reference to an army of locusts. And then we went to Revelation nine verse six And we talked about the demonic locust that's going to be released in uh, Daniel chapter 9. They have power to hurt people. It describes them. And one of the descriptions that it gives is word for word, they have teeth of a lion. As a matter of fact, my cross-reference there says Revelation 9, verse 8. The reason I bring this up is I want you to be sensitive to the fact that they could be, this is a literal judgment that's being brought by literal locusts that's going to uh, wipe everything that's green to the ground. And it's literal to that. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit will drop this one little verse in here and it's going to make a connection with something that is still yet future. And we see it over and over and over again. So if I would just. Um, summarize um, verse the first chapter it is a local judgment and the idea of it here is that it pales in comparison to what the rest of the book of Joel is going to be about because it's going to deal this will be one of the first places that uh, we're going to be talking about Ezekiel 38 tonight We'll be talking about the days leading up to um, the Great Tribulation. We'll take you through the Great Tribulation and then actually into the Kingdom Age. All the things that I just thrown out there are all going to be covered in, in the second half of chapter 2. And the last, Joel only has three chapters. So the idea of chapter 1 is literal, but it was for them then. But the rest of the book is yet future, and things that lead up to um, uh, the kingdom age, the judgment of the Gentiles, Ezekiel 38, the the Battle of Armageddon. And um, I guess with that, we will, our last verse that we read last week was 11, Let me draw your attention to the subtitle before we get to verse 12. On top of it, it says, Conditional Promise of the Salvation of Judah. Now, we dealt with this a couple weeks ago because the Lord said that um, he's going to undo, he's going to take the promise away unless. He gave them an ultimatum. And the question I brought up is just, wait a second, God's promises are unconditional. He made an unconditional promise to King David. 
that he would establish a kingdom. And we made a distinction between an unconditional promise and a conditional promise. What we're about to read in verses 12 um, here is making the point where the Lord says, now therefore says the Lord, turn your heart towards me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. So here is, a, here is a condition. This is what you need to do. And if you don't, then the promises that he's made to them um, are conditional. Now, verse 13, now he gives the reason for turning to the Lord. And in verse 13 we read, so render, so render your heart and not your garments. Um, they were never supposed to, the priests were never supposed to tear their clothing. And yet, at times, they actually did that. He says, that's not what I'm looking for. I want you to do that to your heart, not to your garments. Return to the Lord your God. And here's the rationale in verse 13. Why? Because he's gracious and he's merciful. He's slow to anger and he's of great kindness and he relents from doing harm. Doesn't the word tell us that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? There's a, whole, there's a whole lot of theology in that one statement. That's his nature. He's gentle, slow to anger, not willing that any should perish, but unless a person repents, um, that's exactly what is going to take place. So the motive and the reason for turning to the Lord is his great mercy that he has, and he relents from doing harm. Now from verses 14 to 17, we actually have a description that he's giving to them on how they're supposed to go about doing this act of repentance. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? and a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Now fasting is really nothing more than denying physical appetites, in this case food. And what it does is it makes your flesh weak, but it causes the spirit to become stronger. And that's the idea of of, um, fasting Uh, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, even the children, and nursing babes, and let the bridegroom go out from his chamber. Let the priest who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? So he's giving them an example of what he's looking for, a broken and a contrite spirit. And that is one, is actually a beautiful picture of what repentance uh, really is all about. Um, 18 to 20 
is interesting because this is one of the places where we're on a subject of repentance, but now he's going to skip ahead just um, a little bit where he says in 18, we'll read 18 through 20 here, then the Lord, when you do that, have a real uh, broken heart, uh, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. And the Lord will answer and say to the people, behold, I'll send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them, and I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. He's leading up to it in these verses, um, the Ezekiel 38 war. I'm going to backtrack and uh, just quote to you a little bit about Ezekiel 35 and 36, and, um, and actually 37. What we have in these verses is a promise that they would once again be regathered back into the land of Israel after being gone for so long. And a story's coming to mind, a David Hawking story. I've told it before, but maybe you're new here, or maybe you're watching live stream and you've never heard it. Um, I hope to be with Dave. Well, Dave's going to be there. We're planning on taking in the pre-trib conference um, in Dallas, Texas, uh, the first week of, of December. Uh, Andy Woods is going to be there. Dave Hawking is going to be there. Um, Dave Hawking, first of all, let me just raise your hands. How many of you know what Masada is or heard of Masada? Almost everybody here. It was built by Herod. It's a masterpiece of construction. And um, uh, it took three years for the, the Roman legion to finally capture it. When Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, many of them made it to Masada. And it's a fortress that you, can, you just can't get to it. And when they built Masada, um, they were finally defeated. But it took the Romans three years uh, by using Jewish slaves to build this ramp, an earthen ramp, that would go to the very, very top. And that is how Masada was finally taken. 900 people committed suicide that night rather than being slaves to Rome. And the first person um, to get up there, whoever led a tourist group up there, was David Hawking. And when they get to the very, very top, the oldest synagogue, well, there's an older one now, but the oldest synagogue in the world is on Masada. And um, when David got to the top, they heard all this shouting coming out of the synagogue, and, and he goes, what's going on? Well, in a synagogue, they have a special room where they keep the scrolls. It's called the scroll room. And what they had uncovered when they were doing the excavation of Masada in the scroll room on the floor, they had taken a stone and moved it, and here was a copy of Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36 is a promise that you're going to come back and I'm gonna establish you as a nation 
again. And they were just discovering at this time. It's always been a story just to be. And uh, when we were last November, this time, could have been today as far as I know, uh, we went there and I was scoping things out and I was wondering if it was going to be crowded in the synagogue or not. And for the first time ever, they actually had a rabbi back there copying the scriptures in Hebrew. And I was, I was the only one there. Judy and I went in and we're just checking things out. And I said, I've never seen a rabbi back here. It's always been empty. And I says, but as long as we're the only ones here, can I ask you a question? Is it true? Because I have a friend who told me this story that when they discovered this room for the very first time, that underneath the stone was a copy of the book of Ezekiel open to the part where they would someday return. Why do you say that, Dwight? Because they died with hope. They died knowing that they were going to be conquered that night. They cast lots, ten of them, to see how they would do themselves in. And then the family members, and when it finally got down to ten, they actually cast lots to see who the last person person would be. Uh, This is also Joseph Flavius has also documented this uh, in his his book. But the the guy comes up to me and he says, it's absolutely true. He says, what's your name? And I said, well, my name is Dwight. So he gets out a little card and he says, to Dwight from Rabbi whatever his name was. What's what's your wife's name? Oh, that's Judy. So he's writing out this little thing. And then our group shows up and he's bothered in his own conscience of the thought of suicide and why people would do it. And as I started giving the Bible study, he he came out and started listening. And as he was listening, and I saw him, and I said, would you please address our group as long as you're standing here anyway? (laughs) And he said, I'd like to. But he didn't talk about what I thought he was going to talk about. He wanted to give a a perception of why 900 people would take their own lives. And he says, the only thing I can really compare it to is if you're on the top floor of the Twin Trade Towers in New York and the fire is below you and you're gonna die. How do you wanna die? Do you wanna die in pain and agony and and flames? Or do do you take the jump and it's over just like that? Either way, you're dead, okay? And this was really bothering him as a rabbi that um, people would actually do something like that. And so we got his card. I got a, a picture of him. Um, and the reason I'm, I'm telling you that is because when you go to Ezekiel 36, 35, 36, and 37, we can say, you can check it off. It's been fulfilled. They came back after all those years. Um, by the way, the most expensive movie ever made up to that pot time was Masada. And you can still go out and get it today. It's four hours long, just to give you a heads up. <laughs> um, and it is so well done that I strongly encourage, if you want some uh, um, a good biblical movie to watch, um, it's, it's filmed there. But I, I tell you that because we're living between chapters 37 that's already happened. Israel is back in the land. 
And those people died with the hope knowing that someday they're gonna be brought back into the land. So here it says, I will remove, verse 20, I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive them away into the barren and desolate land. I want to go to Ezekiel chapter 38. It's just a couple chapters before this one here. And I'm just gonna read um, down to verse, oh, down to, to verse nine, let's start there. And remember, 36, 37 has already been filled when Israel became a nation in 1948. They're back in the land, just like Ezekiel said. Verse one, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog and the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Um, Gog, uh, Magog are actually titles. Uh, Meshach and Tubal are actually cities. Uh, different, a little bit different spelling in Russia today. So, boy, can I get sidetracked here talking about Karl Marx and the Russian gulags and and um, the tragedy of the six million Jews that died during World War II. That, that's nothing compared what the communists did in the Russian gulags. Um, Seventy to a hundred million, something like that. A communist, no religion, and now. The question, why would the Lord be against them? The Lord forgets nothing. All this is written down. And their day is coming. And now he says, I'm against you. And then he says, and thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I'm gonna turn you around and put hooks into your jaw and lead you out with all your army horses and splendor Um, behold a great company of bucklers, shields of them handling swords. Now, the next couple verses are important because we're talking about specific number of nations. Not all the nations of the world, like at Armageddon. This is a localized war that Joel says comes out of the north that he's going to deal with. Persia, well, They just, Iran changed its name about 100 years ago from um, Persia to Iran. Ethiopia, Libya, all of them with their shields and helmets, Gomar, and the troops in the house of Togarma um, from the far north and of its troops, many people with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about, and be a guard about you. The word guard about you is the idea of enabling them militarily with, um, well, the, the hot items on the, they're talking about today are the F-35s and, and uh, the technology with the smart drones and, and all of that. Who's supplying them? This one that comes from the north is supplying these other nations. It says, eight, this is, is important, after many days, You will be visited in when? The latter years. And you will come into the land that was brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which have long been desolate. Yeah, since 70 AD, they've been very desolate until they started coming back. Though though you were brought out of the nations and now all of them safely dwell, 
You will come down like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Now verse 15. Then you will come from your place, where? Out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, uh, riding on their horses in great companies uh, and, a, and a mighty army. I actually believe this is a, a first century man trying to give you information on, on what military hardware looks like at this time. Verse 16, you will come up against my people like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days and I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before your eyes. Most of Israel today, um, I would just say they're just plain secular. An average American, secular American, no different than an average uh, secular Jew. But God is going to directly intervene. By the way, I would make mention here in... in um, um, who's not involved in this war, for some reason or another, is America. Uh, there's going to be a... Sheba and Dedan is modern-day Saudi Arabia. Uh, the big issue in the Middle East when it comes to Sunnis and Shiites, they hate each other more than they hate Israel. And Saudi Arabia, um, they're neutral. They don't get involved in this war. And yet they're Arab. Uh, the merchants of Tarshish and the young, uh, young lions will say to you, why have you come to take a plunder? Why have you gathered to take a booty? Well, I get real sidetracked here why Russia wants to be involved. And that's the Leviathan natural gas just found off the coast of Haifa within the last 10, 15 years. Unbelievable amount um, into the billions and trillions of dollars. And that's one of the reasons, have you come to take a spoil? They discovered oil on the Golan Heights. Uh, just take, the, just take the, the SP off a spoil and you got it, oil. And so they, they're there with an alternative motive, but the Arab countries, uh, part of the Quran is once a land is owned by an Arab, it always has to remain that way. Under no circumstances can it be reverted to another nation. They have to take it back again. All right, so um, I could give you more. The rest of this chapter is the Lord directly intervening and fighting on behalf of Israel. And he's the one that uh, gets involved with this battle. And uh, verse twenty. 3 of 38 says, and thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. Let's go back to Joel and read verse 20 again. Here we have a sliver of a thing where we're switching gears from repentance to what the Lord is gonna do for them I will remove far from you the northern army. I believe this is Ezekiel 38, where he gets involved and removes it and drives them away. With his face towards the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea, his stench will come up and his fall order will rise because he has done monstrous things. So that's verse 20. 
Now, in verses 21 through 23, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the former and the latter reigns. So let's read verse 21 here. The Lord says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, your beasts of the field, for the open pastures are sprung up, and the trees bear its fruit. The fig tree, the vine, yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Now, this is not figurative. We're literally talking up until the 1900s, the the rains weren't there. It was barren. It was rocky. And it was desolate, period. But again, when you read verses Ezekiel 35 and 36, he says, the land that was desolate, I'm going to make it look like the Garden of Eden. Now, you visit places like Sakni today, which is this beautiful reserve uh, going down the Jordan Valley. Tiers of beautiful pools, three tiers of pools that go down. Um, we discovered it by accident when we were visiting Gideon Springs. It's the place the locals go to for picnics on the weekend. That's where they hang. And uh, when we found out about that spot, well, we changed where we have our baptisms in Israel because it's so incredibly beautiful. And um, the reforestation of uh, the land, the, the mountains that were barren, are full of trees. And um, parts of Israel today are absolutely gorgeous. Why? The rains have returned. And that's what's speaking about here. And now let's go down to verse 24. These are events that are going to be um, leading up to the day of the Lord. And um, the threshing floor shall be full of wheat. The, The vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Now he's connecting chapter one, which was what literally happened to the southern kingdom in Joel's day. But now he's making it and he's comparing it to something that he ain't seen nothing yet for what's going to happen. The crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, the chewing locusts, my great army which I send among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame and then you shall know that I am the Lord and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never be put to shame. So what we're seeing here is a transition pretty much what Israel and its beauty is like today. The last part of chapter two, verses 28 to 32, are events that um, are before what we would call time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. But first we have, again, get used to this before he goes into explaining that, There's a prophecy that is fulfilled in Acts chapter two that doesn't have anything to do really with what's in the context of what we're studying here. 
Let's read it. Verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. And on my maidservants and on my men servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Let's just stop right there. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We'll be coming back to Acts after we finish the book of Revelation. So in Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. Pente means 50. And they were all gathered together in, in one place. This is the only place where the Holy Spirit is described as being not only seen, but heard. Nowhere else is it seen and heard. But here, cloven flames above their head, and it comes in like a mighty rushing wind, which could be heard. And there were people that that were gathered from all over the world. The the countries here are mentioned, Mesopotamia, Judea, Judea, Pontus, Asia, Egypt, um, Syrian, uh, Cretans, Arabs. They were all there for the Feast of Pentecost. And of course, they spoke different languages. And all of a sudden, um, they began to speak in another tongue as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now the tongues that were there, um, it, it says that we understand people who don't know our language speaking our language praising God. So it's not gibberish. They're actually speaking another language that was, would have been foreign to them. Now, I don't know French, but if this would have been me this day and I came from somewhere else and I'm sitting next to somebody with, that was from Paris and he's praising God in, in a French language, that's what the Bible says is taking place. Um, let's pick it up because those that are standing by, uh, they're getting their minds blown. But Peter, standing up with the 11, verse 14, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk. They thought these guys are drunk. As you suppose, since it's only the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's important to note that when the early church began, they were all Jewish. A lot of these people didn't go back to their native lands. And they stayed there and were basically getting discipled. Instead of um, 
of going back to their home hometowns. All right, we could we could say much here, except to point out that Joel chapter. Let's go back to Joel. Joel chapter two verses twenty-eight is a prophecy that was fulfilled, but not completely because it's ongoing. And but it began on the day of Pentecost. Um, Peter clearly says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he gives it to us word for word. All right, chapter three. Basically now, we're going to have, um, for all those people that have heard the gospel and have rejected it and done wickedly, um, geez, this is almost too gross to tell, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, Bastu, I was communicating with him through on the WhatsApp, and it's getting so bad down in Haiti right now that one of the things that they do is they kidnap people. Usually, if they can get their hands on American, they have a better chance of getting money. In this case, it's off. They're just after anybody. So they kidnapped a young 13-year-old little girl, held her up for ransom. Parents had no money, were very, very poor, and they found her in the garbage dump. And that's how bad things are getting. Now that's a pretty grotesque picture that I just told you. But that's the idea that we're gonna get into when I start reading here, because it uses that as an example. And know this, Nobody gets away with anything. Can I say that again? Nobody gets away with anything. If you've given your life to Christ, your sins are forgiven and you'll never be put to shame. On the other hand, if you've heard the gospel and you reject it, that's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says the only sin that can never ever and will never ever be forgiven on earth or in heaven is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Dwight? Well, that's when you hear the truth that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And you say, no, I'm gonna do my own thing. This is a list of what we're gonna get into here and why there has to be this period of time we call the tribulation. Verse one, for behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, and that's happened. I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now we're skipping ahead here just a little bit because this is a reference to the Battle of Armageddon. But before we get to the end of, of, of uh, uh, chapter 19, he's going to give the reasons that he's allowing this great tribulation to take place. And I will enter into judgment with them on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people. They have given a boy in exchange for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Thus my story from Haiti. Indeed, they have you to do with me. What have you to do with me? O Tyre and Sidon, and the coast of Felicia, uh, which is Gaza, will you retaliate against me? 
This reminds me of Psalm 2, where they said, we're going to fight against the God of heaven. And it goes on to say that he who sits on high will laugh and hold them in derision. I mean, is there anything more ludicrous to think that, that anything ever in existence could fight against the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God? And that's what he's saying there. Are you gonna retaliate against me? Uh, but will swiftly and speedily I will return your retaliation upon your own head because you've taken my silver, my gold. You've carried um, your temples, my prized possession. And the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, and you've sold them to the Greeks that you may remove them far from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them and will return your retaliation upon your own head. Now these are simply reasons why God is allowing the tribulation to take place. I will send your sons and your daughters into the hands of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off for the Lord has spoken. Now, on Sunday... um, we actually came back here <clears throat> and I used um, some of these verses because it tied so much into Revelation 14 with the great harvest. When we talked about the harvest and what it was, it was the Lord, remember, with his sharp sickle and, and um, uh, bringing judgment and it was the Lord, he said, who would, he would do it by himself. So from verses 9 to 15, um, I'm just going to read verse 10 and stop and make a comment. He says, prepare this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears let the weak say, I am strong. I'm gonna stop here and put something on the screen that's on, printed on the United Nations. And as you're looking at it, I'm going to read, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Well, someone will say, I thought the Bible said to beat your swords into plowshares. Well, it does say that. But the time to do that is when the kingdom is established on the earth. The United Nations ambition and what they're gonna do is they're gonna beat their swords um, into plowshares. That's not applicable for right now. What's applicable for right now is the Lord is telling us in verse nine, do just the opposite. You uh, you, you, You take your plowshares and you make them into swords. Um, and because we're entering into the great tribulation. But again, people get confused here because in Isaiah 2 and in Micah 4, it says that the Bible says to beat your swords in the plowshares. Now this is during the millennial kingdom. And what does it say about one characteristic about the millennial kingdom? they will learn of war no more. I haven't heard an amen all night, but it's a good place for one here. 
They will learn of war no more. What are the countless, countless, not millions or billions, but trillions of dollars that could be used in so many other places than making um, the, the unbelievable cost of, a, of these F-35s or the new ones are coming out with. Um, that will be no more. Assemble, verse 11, and come all you nations and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord, and let the nations be awakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Okay, again, this is a valley where the battle of Armageddon will eventually be fought. And there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And we quoted this several times on Sunday. Put in the sickle. The harvest is ripe. Come down now, for the winepress is full. The vast over vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That's the way it is today. Multitudes, undecided, neither for or against, just sort of doing your own, their own thing. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And another, the day of the Lord, of course, is a reference to the great tribulation period. The sun and the moon will grow dark, excuse me, will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. And from 16 to here on out, um, it, we're ushering in the kingdom age after the tribulation. The Lord will also roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, and then Jerusalem shall be holy. No aliens will ever pass through her again, and it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. What? The land flowing with milk and honey. And the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water, a fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord. Uh, there's a whole chapter we could go to for that. And the waters of the valley of Keshai. Egypt shall be a desolation, and Eden a, des- a desolate wilderness, because of violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land, but Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation for I will acquit them of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. We, we can pick up, and I can turn to chapter 15 of Revelation, and what it's gonna do is give us a very detailed event of the last three and a half years, what we call the bowl judgments. So it's like this, gang. It dovetails like this. And if I would summarize um, the book of Joel, a real local disaster of locusts that devastated the southern kingdom. Used as a comparison, that's nothing compared to what the great day of the Lord is going to be like and what people are gonna be like and their attitudes are gonna be like and why he's actually going 
uh, to bring this great judgment upon them. So as we um, uh, leave this evening, again, we're, we're in a place where, uh, I just shake my head, things are, are so surreal in, in everyday life. A lot of people, psychologically, mentally, it's taken its toll on so many. And I'm just grateful, grateful for you guys, grateful that we have you know, fellowship, that we can come and, and worship and have a Bible study and go home and go, I can chew on that for a while. <laughs> Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And thank you that, Lord, as we started with this verse in Amos, surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophet. And he does that for our stability emotionally, spiritually, because you've laid it all out. You've told us exactly what you're gonna do. Everything that you said um, prior to the rebirth of Israel, that's all been fulfilled 100%. And that great, gives us great certainty that those things that you said are yet future, we know are going to happen. And I like the way the book of Joel ends with this beautiful promise that from year to year, they'll, the nations will come up and worship at the Feast of Tabernacles and that your kingdom, in contrast to the other world kingdoms, is one that will last forever and ever and ever. And we, we thank you for, for your word. And we just pray you go before us now. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen.